Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. I want to start out by reminding everybody that this Saturday afternoon, I will be assembling and giving away a smoke clear retro game restore case for a Super Famicom. And that giveaway, you get the original case, the brand new smoke clear case, and the Super Famicom itself all for free. All you have to do is be following me on Whatnot. And if you're not on the platform yet, if you use the link I have in the description, you get $10 off your first purchase. So I wanted to put this at the beginning instead of the end this week, because this isn't just a cheesy ad for something else that I'm doing. I just really like being able to give stuff away for free, and I wanted all of you to know about it. So please follow the links that I have in the description. I hope to see you all on Saturday afternoon. And after the giveaway, I will be opening up a box and going through converters, transcoders, and other stuff that I don't use that I'll be testing and auctioning off. So I think this is going to be a fun, nerdy stream. I hope to do a whole bunch of these, but join up on Saturday, see what you think. And as always, I'm all for your feedback. If you want more or less different time frame of doing it, if you want it randomly at 7 a.m. on a Tuesday, because that, you know, you could sneak at your job and, and be looking at this while you're working. I don't care. Let me know and I will try to accommodate. But anyway, enough of the whatnot stuff. Let us jump in to see what's been going on in the Q&As. First up, James the Naked Snake is looking for a Switch solution for their retro consoles. They have a few component video via standard component video RCA cables, and they also have a bunch of RGB SCART cables and one component video over SCART cable as well. And in order to properly answer this question, I'm going to need to know exactly what your target device is or, or multiple devices would be. But I could still walk you through the basics of what you might need. Now, immediately when people hear a mix of signals and multiple inputs and outputs needed, the first thought is, oh, look into an Extron Crosspoint, because those were very expensive, high-end pieces of equipment that you could now find for very, very cheap online. And that is a great solution, because it'll accept all of those signals, including composite video and S-video, and you could find them between 8 and 32 inputs and outputs. So you could really get your mix of everything that you need right there, but there are some downsides. First, it's old used equipment, which means it'll probably be fine, but it'll eventually need maintenance just like all pieces of electronics, even the best of the best. So that's immediately something to keep in mind. You're buying a used piece of equipment, so there's no telling how long it's going to last before it needs work. Could be a long time, could be a week, who knows? The next is that all of those connectors are BNC connectors. So for component video, that's easy. You buy a sack of very cheap RCA to BNC adapters and you're done with there. But for the SCART solution, you run into two problems. First, you need to somehow convert that SCART cable to BNC. So you could buy pre-made adapters, you could make your own, you could try to modify it yourself. You could buy open source adapter boards and just solder in the connectors so it's super easy. But that is going to be something that you have to tackle. And on the signal line of things, then you're also going to have to deal with the fact that the Extron crosspoints don't accept anything other than C-Sync on their S input, so RGBS sync. And in that case, you would either need to convert the cable. So in the case of PS1 and 2, there is no C-Sync output, so you would need some kind of sync stripper, which for the record is like the only scenario in which I suggest using a sync stripper is this exact one. But you would either have to do that and if it's only for PS1, and let's say PS2 you have connected via component, that might be worth it. 
except what if you have a bunch of cables that are Syncon Composite or Syncon Luma, then you would need it for all of them. And now it starts to get into a complicated, weird mix of things that I wouldn't want to deal with. And of course, depending on your target device, you might need a resistor on the output line, uh, on the output sync line of the cross point as well, and all depending on what you're going into and what signal that you're sending it. So that's you know, there's a lot of downsides to this, but it could still be the perfect solution. The other thing you could try is just buying two G-SCARTs, one G-Comp and one G-SCART. And assuming that you have only eight total SCART cables or maybe seven plus the component video over SCART, that might be a, a good solution. Now, if you're starting out with, you have 10 SCART devices this probably isn't going to work because they have eight inputs. So you would need to buy multiple of these, probably three instead of two. And that's when you're starting to get into an area that even if you had custom cables made that go directly into the cross point, that might be cheaper overall. But there are some advantages of this. First of all, it's brand new, high quality equipment designed by and for the retro gaming scene, which is a bigger deal than one might think, because first of all, brand new, high quality components are obviously going to last longer than old components that are still high quality, but Super G designed these with gamers' needs in mind. So that's not something that you would run into too much of an issue with the cross points, but things like voltage and sync, you just don't have to worry about at all with the G-SCART stuff. They have little toggle switches on the side if you need to change anything, but that's a could be a big deal to you or it could not, depending on your setup. And then at that point, you would also have to decide what you wanted to do about signals. So if your target device is an OSSC or a RetroTINK 5X or a multi-sync or a multi-input RGB monitor, just take the two G-SCARTs and the, the G-SCART and the G-COMP, plug them each into the SCART and component video inputs and switch the inputs whenever you need to toggle back and forth. So it's a mostly plug and play automated solution. But what if you wanted everything as component video or everything as RGB SCART? You could stick a RetroTank transcoder in there as well and use that. Now, I believe there's an issue where the transcoder's on all the time, so that might mess with auto switching, but you just buy one of those USB cables with a switch built in in line and only turn on, you know, whichever one is the most important to you, keep first, <coughs> excuse me, and then route the other one through it. So overall, it's really going to depend on your target device, what cables you have. To make it easier, you might need to rebuy that component over SCART cable as just a standard RCA component cable. But there's going to be some cost sunk into this no matter what. So you should kind of consider cabling as part of it. Or heck, if you just happen to have a bunch of really terrible RGB SCART cables that you've collected over the years, maybe that's part of the decision. Because if you need to rebuy your cables anyway, maybe buy some with BNC in mind or something like that. So uh, if you want to provide more details as to what your target device is, I'd be happy to go through that. If I just gave you the you know the tools on to pick your own decision, that's cool too. I am kind of just curious how you're going to end up with, just because I'm a nerd and I'm curious. But hopefully that at least pointed you in the right direction. JLo had a question and also wanted to comment about the WhatNot stream. And in fact, I got a few people mentioning the WhatNot streams and had some positive feedback. So thank you for letting me know and thank you for showing up because I really, for whatever reason, had a great time doing that. It was a lot of fun. It was like 
kind of exciting doing the whole auctioning thing at the same time, but I wouldn't have any fun if nobody showed up. So I really appreciate it. I'm going to keep trying to put new and interesting things on there, or even like this weekend. I'm sure it's going to be a little bit boring for some people because we're going to be testing, you know, transcoders and other stuff and assembling a case. So it might not be everybody's thing, but it probably is going to be a nerd's thing. My fellow nerds might might enjoy it. But anyway, um, thank you for that. JLo's actual question is, are there any modifications that could be done to the smaller miniaturized mini PS1? So the little white console, the you know, original PlayStation that was re-released as a smaller version. And the short versions, mostly no. My general advice for people with those are a few things. First, you could just keep it and embrace the fact that you have a neat original console. You know, it was one of the first of the miniaturized ones. You had the SNES Mini, the you know the NES Top Loader, and the SMS2 and the Genesis. But that was really like, you know, nowadays it's common, right? Every console has different revisions that get smaller. But that was still in the era of like, you know, it was different and neat. So. That's something to think about, at least. Um, the other thing you could do is try any soft mods for it, like the Tony Hack stuff, which is pretty cool because that will allow you to keep it completely stock when you need when you need it, like for certain games that have copy protection, but also run backups and CDRs when you don't need that too. So that's something that's cool as well. But you could also install just a standard mod chip into it. And it is not nearly as hard as a PlayStation 2 mod chip, but it's not the easiest just because of the smaller points. So I don't know if I would recommend a beginner do it, but it should be fun and an easier one for people that are used to modding. Um, but as far as like an HDMI mod for it, I don't think that's going to happen at all. And as far as an optical drive emulator, I don't think there's any plans for it. People had theorized different ways it could be done or different ways that you could kind of shoehorn the existing ones in. But I never, I don't think it ever left theory. I don't think anybody ever did it to prove that it could be done. So while for all I know, there could be something being released tomorrow. I really don't. I'm not being coy. But for all I know, there's something out there. Uh, I would say that I wouldn't plan on anything being released. I would only plan on the options that are out there today. So take those suggestions and uh, either say those are dumb suggestions. I'm not taking them or take them to heart. It's up to you. But that's kind of my thoughts on all of that now. But I think running Tony Hacks off of it is probably a good idea and probably going to get you a bunch of features without any, any hard botting to that at all. So Yepo wanted to follow up on the discussion from last week about using something like lookup tables to take analog data and change it into digital data. And apparently that's what's happening on screen uh, with the classic Tetris World Championship. The Trayvision used takes two different CRTs and combines the data of what's happening into a digital play field for the audience. Uh, Yepo left a link, which I'll link in the description. So that is amazing and awesome. Uh, I'm not sure how much latency is added to that. So once again, I'm still wondering if that's something that could be implemented into a real-time processor with no latency added. It might need at least one frame, but probably more. But that's freaking awesome. So thank you very much for, for sharing that. And obviously the link's down below for anybody interested. Couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, they have an original SNES, and while they're pretty content with how it looks, they're curious if there's anything at all they could do to make it look better. Stuff is coming. Stuff is, some of the stuff is delayed for a long time because of the part shortage. Other stuff is coming sooner once documentation's done. And I have no idea what's the best yet because I haven't been able to really spend much time with any of it, but stuff is coming. And there's also stuff that's not good that's coming too. I, I just, I love all experiments from the point of view of proof of concept, but some should stay that way. 
some shouldn't be turned into products just for the sake of being turned into products, which, you know, if you want to think that's disrespectful, that's fine. I deserve it, but it's also my honest opinion. But don't worry, I'll talk about all the stuff that I personally test and vouch for or personally test and don't, but I'll try to share as much info as I can once it's out there. So if you have a non-one-chip Super Nintendo, stay tuned. There's definitely good things coming. Uh, good things of, of different skill levels, too. Everything from, holy crap, this is a hard mod, to like, wow, I'm pretty sure I could do that. Uh, next from Jason, they ordered a three-pack of the ESP8266 boards for use with the GBS control, but they only used one uh, for the project. Do I have any other suggested uses for them? Preferably gaming or video related, but they'll take anything. So I would hold on to those because while I can't think of anything, you know, on the spot off the top of my head here, that chip is used in quite a few different projects. And I would be willing to bet that there are more things coming that would support that same thing. So um, either use this as an opportunity to make GBS controls for your friends or uh, just kind of hold on to them, leave them in a drawer, label them, because I always, if I don't label them, it might get lost forever, and uh, and kind of just hold on, because I don't know for sure of anything coming, but I imagine there is, because that's a common chip, and it's very useful. Uh, lastly, as a cheap and lazy solution for displaying certain sources on an S-Video CRT, they bought one of those crappy $10 HDMI to S-Video converters, but it also includes composite video as well. However, it seems like the composite and S-Video outputs from it are identical in quality, even down to the distinct patterns of video noise. Not that this is a super high quality product or anything, but just from a tinkerer's perspective, is there anything you think they could do to spoof up the S-Video side? No. Um, now, you could, as you said, cut off the composite video line right on the board itself just to see what happens. But there's an excellent chance that this thing is only doing HDMI to composite. And they also have an S-Video uh, connector in there as well, where they basically just jam the signals on it. But the interference is right there, or it's composite over S-Video. Um, which I've seen before. I've, I've most commonly seen those in the very crappy, like a uh, Super Nintendo style output cables that have composite and S video, but they look the same. So if you really wanted to mess with it, you could get in there, trace everything out and cut composite video right from the chip and see if it eliminates board noise. Um, but I wouldn't have high hopes for it, but it's a cheap device. So, Hey, maybe it's worth playing with. And by the way, uh, for, the scenario that you're talking about, displaying sources, you chose those words, you did not say for gaming on, it's an awesome device. Um, honestly, there's so many different silly and fun ways I could think of for my own setup to want to display HDMI on S-Video where picture quality isn't the focus, the project's the focus, the fun part, the art side of it. I would never call myself an artist, but whatever, you know, that, that type of thing. So, or watching TV and movies. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why those converters, even bad quality are totally fine to use, just not for gaming, which you didn't say that. I'm just, you know, telling everybody who might be listening and thinking, oh, I might give one of those a try to play modern games on older TVs. Wouldn't suggest it for that, but for a ton of other reasons, it's certainly a fun thing to try. So if you want to get in there and hack around, uh, see what happens and cross your fingers, but always have low expectations for those cheap boxes. 
Okay, Shorjor has followed up from the conversation of last week about getting 480p over SCART on a Luva Arcada 100Hz TV. Um, in respect of everybody's time, I'm not going to go go back all the way through that. Please reference the timestamps in last week or the week before. I can't remember which. I'm sorry. But please reference that if you're interested. But it's getting exciting now. So apparently, Luva offered a special component over SCART cable for getting progressive sources in through the SCART connector. So essentially, this is the type of thing that I assumed in that it's not actually doing 480p RGBS. There's probably an internal switch that allows you to do that. Now, how does it switch? That's the question. Can you just get a cable that feeds RCA inputs over the RGB lines and the TV will auto-detect it, that's not very likely. But is there some kind of thing like, a, you know, two pins are jumped together, which is not part of the SCART standard, but that particular TV would recognize it and switch into component video mode. That's the type of thing that you're going to want to look into. Or, or is there some kind of option right in the menu to switch to component video mode? Um, I've never messed with the Arcata versions, but I do love those Luva TVs. So it'd be interesting to see. Uh, but that I definitely think is worth some more research because that could end up being an incredibly cheap solution. You could probably find some adapters online that would do it. Uh, and even if you had to mod the adapter to jump two pins together or something, that that's absolutely worth your time to mess with and to see you know how that works. Now, on the flip side, you found out that the chassis on your TV also has a VGA card av available and you have the schematics for it. And in the service manual, you found that enabling VGA is possible through just the service menu of the chassis, as long as the VGA card is present. So should they go down this rabbit hole and design a VGA card uh, and have it made at JLC PCB? A funny little aside, I'm working on a video on how to do PCB assembly through them. Uh, and I don't even think that's going to be a sponsored video. Just a lot of people were asking. So I wanted to walk through the steps of that. But anyway, um, so I think you're going to want to double check something. My gut's telling me, yes, this is worth it. Um, it could be a project that the seven other people with Luva Arcadas, Arcadas would definitely want to buy. Uh, I, I just, it's not going to be something where, you know, you sell a thousand of them, but I think this is something that is worth it if, and that's the very big if on this one. With that schematics and with the service manual, is it like those JVC monitors where essentially you just need to run the correct traces and make sure that the circuit around it is just presenting those signals, RGB, HV, in a way that your TV likes it? So even if it's required to convert it to RGBS, you could use the schematics, you could use some of the stuff that we've been designing in the open source community for retro gaming. But if that's it, if it's basically off-the-shelf parts and circuits that may or may not need tweaking... I do really think it would be worth going through the trouble. However, if there are chips with proprietary software on that, that's where you run into a bit of an issue. Because even if you had the ability to remove the security functions, dump the code, and reflash it, that is straight up stealing and theft. Now, we're talking about a TV that has long been sold, and there's no chance that that code's being used in any newer Luva TVs. I don't even know if Luva makes TVs anymore, to be honest. So this is one of those scenarios in which, from a moral point of view, I don't have any issue with this because you're not taking a penny out of anybody's pocket. But from a reselling or open source point of view, you wouldn't be able to put it on GitHub with that code um, unless you somehow put a, you know, like a packet sniffer and reverse engineered it yourself, which is a tremendous amount of work. Or uh, you wouldn't be able to sell it either without risk of, of something. So 
you know, it's up to you if you wanted to do that. Because once again, only my opinion, you don't have to agree, but I don't think there's a moral issue with that, but there could be a legal issue that I just personally wouldn't want to deal with. So up to you if you want to go through that, but if there's no custom proprietary code on there, and it really is just schematics that show pinouts of stuff with basic off-the-shelf parts, yeah, I think that would be great. Sell it, open source it, do both, whatever you want to do. I think that people with Luva Arcadas would probably really benefit from that. Um, and then you could just do something like a component video to VGA converter in order to, to do that. Or if it somehow still accepts RGBS over that, you could just use the RetroTank transcoder through that. So um, basically, no matter what, I think this TV is worth a little more of your time you just have to get a few more answers before you decide if it's then worth a ton of your time afterwards to keep going. So are there any proprietary software chips on that schematic board? And how do you enable component video if you route it through? If you answer those two questions, you should be able to make your own decision afterwards, but please keep me posted because this is pretty cool. It's a Serial Wow said they're planning on moving their PVM upstairs and connecting their older consoles directly to it via HD Retrovision component cables, and then using the video outputs of the PVM to go to a RetroTINK 5X into a capture card or LCD monitor. If they understand correctly, the video pass-through will work even when the PVM is powered off. Yes, that should all work fine. Their question is, there might be times where they want to play 480p content on their LCD monitor, but they don't know if the PVM powered off can safely pass a 31 kilohertz signal, since the PVM itself only accepts 15 kilohertz. Will this work? And if so, will it damage the PVM? They have a Trinitron PVM 1453MD. So, uh, I think I have the answer to this one. If the PVM is off, now, BVMs have standby mode and off, and all of the PVMs that I've seen have hard toggle switches. So for the purpose of this conversation, I'm going to say off, off. So your PVM has the toggle switch off, or if this were a BVM that only accepts 15 kilohertz, you flipped the switch in back and made sure it was completely off. I am 99.9% sure that in this configuration, there is no chance of any any harm whatsoever. The voltages are all the same. You know, the components that it would pass through off wouldn't even know that there was a signal there. And if it does pass through any kind of capacitors or resistors, those aren't going to be affected by frequency, certainly not in the context of safety in the way we're discussing here. So I am 99.9% .9 sure that is a perfectly safe scenario, and the frequencies only start to matter when you go through the power supply and the electron gun, both of which would be off. If anybody has any other knowledge about that or thinks I'm wrong in any way, please chime in. Please just chime in with something other than my cousin's sister's brother's former roommate did that once and it blew up the PVM. Like, there's that story never ends the way you think it does. Or if, if you know, you're a nerd, it ends exactly the way you think it does. It had nothing to do with the original problem. So anybody that has any actual knowledge as to why that could be dangerous, even if it's only a theory, I'm all ears. P put some actual nerdiness into it. Um, they also have a similar concern with using their mister with dual output. If the analog cables are still connected to the PVM while they're playing a game over uh, core over an HDMI that uses 31 kilohertz for its analog output, will this damage the PVM while it's powered off? Same exact thing with the mister. As long as 
your PVM and BVM are hard off, not unplugged, but just hard off, not in standby mode, it should be fine as far as I know. I cannot imagine a scenario in which that's the case, um, especially in the context of the things that you're talking about plugging into it. It's all the same voltage. It's all the same everything else. So you don't have to worry. Question from John Torn. What's up, John? Uh, when they were a kid, up through their mid-20s, their TV only had an RF input. So for any consoles that used RCA output, they would run the RCA connection to a VCR and then have the VCR send its RF signal to the TV. The question is, would the VCR have introduced any lag or were they just bad at games? They're older now, they could handle the truth. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, John, but it is most likely that you just weren't that great at games back then, or you were just picking really freaking hard games, which is plausible. Um, I don't remember testing this. I feel like I have. I feel like I have multiple times, but I can't remember where or when I was. Um, I, For fun, I'll test it again just for the heck of it. But here's my theory in this. When you're talking about the circuits inside of a VCR, you have composite video generated by the tapes through the circuitry going out, run into RF encoders and transcoders, which is essentially the same that you would find on consoles. Most of these, the signals would generate in composite, then go through the RF encoder out. So it's the same way they were done in consoles. And I'm 99% sure I did demos of RF composite S-video and then even used a slow motion camera. And I don't even think the slow motion camera was because of lag. I think I had other reasons for doing it, but I'm pretty sure it was all the exact same. So, and on the flip side, it's very common for people to take consoles that are RF only, run them through a VCR to get composite video out. So I should double check one time just for a very fun live stream video, just for the heck of it. Um, I could call it the was John bad at games as a kid live stream if you really wanted, but I would like to test just to demonstrate. But my gut's telling me that in most cases that there would be zero or near zero latency added when doing any kind of transcoding like that. However, if for whatever crazy reason, you ended up having a VCR that had some kind of processing chip in it, which I have one right here. I've never lag tested it because I don't know if I can't remember what inputs it has or anything like that, but those would be very expensive, but it's possible that you had one of those and it's possible those would add lag. And same with any of the VCRs that came in later years that were bundled with DVD players. It is possible that you, ha if you had one of the ones that everything was combined, there was some kind of processing involved, but most of those were just a VCR and a DVD player in the same box with the same remote, but they were actually two completely different devices. And it was essentially the same as if you had just bought two. Most, they were just gimmicks mostly. I have one here I, where I could actually see the use for it and all that, but for the most part, yeah, it was a little on the gimmicky side. But if you did find one of the ones with it all combined, it could have very well been some kind of processing done. But I don't think that's what you're talking about. I think you're talking about basic VCRs. So, I'm pretty sure I already tested and pretty sure it's zero lag added, but I'd like to do a fun stream at some point in the future just for the hell of it, just to see. Oliver Clare was wondering if PS3 games that support stereoscopic 3D will only run properly on Sony's own PlayStation 3D display, or will they work with any regular 3D TV? So um, as far as the main use goes, you know, games that are 3D compatible, 
any TV that's compatible with 3D Blu-rays will be compatible with those games. I've personally only tested it on Panasonic Plasmas and a uh, LG OLED, and it worked great on both all three of those because I use my cousin's Panasonic Plasma as well. I have a projector here that supports 3D, and I haven't tried it yet, but I would be stunned if it was anything other than awesome. I'm pretty sure that feature is just you know, is going to be universal and output in the same method as 3D Blu-rays, meaning universal compatibility with that. Uh, from their brief online searching, it seems that most of the relatively recent games supporting stereoscopic 3D came out on PS3, Xbox 360, and PC. Are there any considerations they should bear in mind when looking for a display for games like these? So I've never played 360 or PC 3D games, but I can just give general recommendations. Um, not to start a fight here, but every time I bring this up, it always seems to. Generally speaking, plasmas were better than LCDs in that era. Obviously, something brand new that just came out that's, you know, of good quality, not bargain quality, would probably rival a plasma, but it's noticeable. Like when I do my football setup, when I have a bunch of screens here, one of the ones I have is a 50 inch plasma and it is absolutely noticeable to anybody in the room. Who's not even a nerd. It's like, why is that one much clearer than that one? And they're looking at, you know, like a modern low end, but still modern 4k LCD versus a 15, 10 year old, you know, Panasonic plasma TV. Um, you know, it's noticeably different. And the black levels are better. So as a whole, I would say that look for a 3D plasma if possible. Now they're heavier. Um, the power boards blow out. The power board blew out on mine. So I gotta I have to recap that on stream one day. So, you know, you might get a little bit more durability with LCD. But overall, I would just say you can get a better picture out of a plasma. Usually, there's always exceptions. Uh, so I would look for that. The only thing that I would say is if you're also going to double this as a PC monitor, then there is a chance of burn-in with plasma. And in fact, there's constant image retention, which it will freak you out the first time it happens. But then after the 20th time of a logo still staying on screen, and then five minutes later, it's completely gone, never to be seen again, you start to get used to it. But when it comes to PC use, that's when I would be nervous. Same thing with OLEDs. So if you decided, okay, I'm going to get a PC with a compatible video card, and I'm going to download these 360 games, play them through the PC, and I'm also going to use this as a monitor, I wouldn't use Plasma because if you have, you know, the start menu and the bar and everything on the bottom, that could burn in. Uh, so that's more of just like a logistic thing than anything else. So that's something to keep in mind. The only other thing to note about PlayStation 3 and the different types of 3D stuff is that there are some features or some games that had a feature where each player would have glasses on and what they would see was actually 2D, not 3D, but it used the stereoscopic switching so that player one would only see what player one's supposed to see and player two would only see what player two is supposed to see. I am pretty sure that that is just utilizing how active 3D glasses work so I don't know if that's something that would translate to all 3D TVs, only 3D TVs with active shutter glasses, or only the PlayStation's 3D display. But I don't think two games supported that, and I don't know anybody that's ever used it. I just know that it exists, and people said they've tried it out here and there, but I don't know if that's a big deal to you or not. So I would research that if you needed to. But as far as just like, here's a game that says 3D capable, yeah, should absolutely work. 
Adam Adam Ant said they checked out the post I did about the 3D printed GameCube backplate with the HDMI port already in there. And they went to the Blue Shell 3D website and saw an amazing looking N64 case shown on the website, but they couldn't find any other info on it and figured I knew something about it. Yeah, of course. Of course they did. You know damn well I saw a picture of that cool case and I just spammed the hell out of the creator with a million questions. Sorry, I'm, you know, I do that sometimes. But the reason that I didn't write that up is because it wasn't ready for sale because the person who created it wasn't done tweaking it. And that's one of those scenarios in which it's my personal opinion. The writers could do whatever else they want, but that's one of those products that I feel like people want to buy. And it's not, you know, with respect to Blue Shell 3D, I don't mean anything negative, but this is not the end-all be-all game-changing product that will change retro gaming forever. So it's a product that if I wrote up now and said, hey, something like this is coming, there's an excellent chance that people might forget about it, which sucks for everybody. Blue Shell 3D loses a sale, you lose a product that maybe you would have loved to buy, but you forgot about, and then subconsciously you start thinking, oh, here's another product that you know RetroRGB.com hosted that I can't buy. It sucks for everybody. So I feel in situations like this that I want to wait till there's a pre-order date and, you know, or in stock, whatever else. I try to talk to the creator and see what they think about this. And that's actually very common. I've reached out to quite a lot of people who have said things like, you know, I ask my million questions and then they end with, but please don't make this public yet because I want to make sure that I have price, I have features laid out, I have a release date, I don't want to give people the wrong expectations for the product, and I, I always listen. And there's been quite a few occasions where the person said, I'll make sure to let you know when it goes up for sale, and then it goes up for sale, and then everybody else is talking about it but me, and I message them like, hey, am I still not allowed to talk about this? But myself and none of the other people who contribute to retro RGB are the type that wants to rush to get the big scoop. We would all rather get the right info out than, than be the first to do something. So I, and I never, I never hold the developers against that. They have better things to do than worry about me, but you know, that's, that's some insight in, in how this happens. And I know that you did not say this, but I do get quite a few comments on the weeklies. Like you forgot or you missed, or why are you not talking about? That's the one that always pisses me off too. You forgot this. You're just not talking about it because you're an elitist gatekeeper that only promotes your friends. And it's like, man, like, do you watch the podcast at all? And Adam, I'm obviously not talking about your post, but I did want to just address that because first and foremost, always let me know if you feel like I've missed something. As always, if you put the slightest bit of effort into being polite about it, you'll get paid attention to more than not. Um, but I always want to know, because there have been a few times where I just, something completely slipped under the radar. But more often than not, it's situations like this where asking the question is perfectly fine, but I don't want to talk about it in a post until it's ready for sale, or I'm already working on a review and it's not done yet, but I'm under handshake NDA with a developer, so I promise not to talk about it, or sometimes it does happen on rare occasion, there's a product that isn't real, and it's vaporware, or it's completely made up in bullshit, or it'll never work, and unless there are pre-orders, I always find it better to just keep my mouth shut because if nobody's selling anything, no one's really getting hurt and I don't have time to deal with that kind of drama. Um, it's just, it's way easier to say nothing, which sucks because then your comment gets ignored, but it's just so much easier to not have to worry about that sometimes. And, you know, sometimes I know, I just know something's not going to work 
and I try to say something about it and I get tons of shit. And when I just say, look, make your own decision, but do you really want to put your money out for this pre-order? And then, you know, eat shit for months, two, three, four years go by. There is no product and there is no apology because no one ever comes back and, and says, hey, sorry for treating you horribly for, for that. You are actually right. Like, that doesn't exist. People don't do that. So, I, I, you know, I try to only get involved in that when I really am afraid of people losing their money. Because I'll, I'll take one for the team if that's the case. But for the most part, if it's something like that, I just try to keep my mouth shut. But that's rare. It's way, way, way more common that, you know, I did genuinely miss it. Or, I you know, I didn't have time to get to it. And the few other things that have happened recently is here, here's just an example that I'm comfortable using a person's name. I don't like to usually call people out, but Modern Vintage Gamer has put out a bunch of awesome videos that I love and I enjoy and I, I'm really appreciative that he takes the time to put them out. But at the same time, I'm out of hours. I don't have any other time left to do anything. I'm going to try to squeeze in one more post and somebody else does something. Um, a blog post, a video, a creation, anything that I like that I think is also good. MVG's got half a million followers. If this person's got like 10 followers, I'm going to write up the smaller one. Not because, you know, of the reverse gatekeeping against MVG. I love his stuff, but MVG does not need my help to promote it. I would love to share that with everybody, but if I had to choose, I'm going to pick the person with 10 followers because they don't have the ability that MVG does to reach more people to spread the awesomeness that they created. I wish that was not the case. I can't imagine MVG is offended by that. Uh, I think, you know, he's a good dude. He's, you know, I think he's the type to agree with me on that. And while I do wish I had the time to write up everything that I thought was cool to share with people, that is another thing is often I do kind of side with the person who who needs help versus the person who definitely doesn't. So I, I know this was a long talk into, uh, not the question that you asked, but I did feel like I just wanted to explain a little bit of behind the scenes of why things get missed. And I wanted to reassure everybody that questions like yours, Adam, the way you, you asked it will always get treated with respect no matter what. Maybe I already reviewed it. Maybe I spent a week of my life reviewing it. It doesn't matter. If you're respectful and you ask a question, I will always try my absolute best to come back with a respectful answer. Please feel free to let me know if I've missed anything. Uh, but, you know, if you come into the comments hard, maybe you're going to get a hard response sometimes. That's what that's just what happens. But it's a good question. Well, looks like all the questions were on Patreon this week, but I did always want to remind everybody that anybody that has any question at all, ask wherever it is that you support and the latest Q&A posts. Um, the way these services work, I can't really go back and figure out what's a new question on an old post. And I also just like scrolling through in real time like you saw me do here. And any support platform is eligible. It's not just the Patreon platform. That's just where most people are. So most of the questions are usually centered there. So any question at all that you have, feel free to ask. Just put it in the newest post and I will get to it the next week. If for whatever reason I don't, it's always an accident. I don't delete questions or comments. Uh, you know, if there's one that I don't want to answer, I might, um, I, I might message you directly or something, but that it's rare. It's usually just a mistake. I skipped it or the question came in after I was done recording. So I didn't even see it. So anything at all you got fire away. I really enjoy doing these and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible because it is you who is keeping all of this stuff alive. The Q and A is the weekly roundup, the weekly long form podcasts, the website, 
all of the behind the scenes research and development, which there's going to be a lot coming out this year for that. So thank you all so much because it's you who makes all of that possible. So thanks again, and I will see you next week.